welcome back to 9394, a music podcast with me. How's it going? I say welcome back like you're an old friend. Maybe you are. I have a lot of friends that are in my listening group. Maybe you're a complete stranger, but you're a friend now. Or maybe it's your first time listening to the pod, in which case welcome, you know, for the first time. All right, now that I've gotten that out of the way. I'm excited to have back on the show my old friend Brandon Callahan. He's been on the show before to talk about Pantera, and as my resident professor of metal, he has returned to discuss Anthrax and their album, The Sound of White Noise, which was like a pivotal album in their career, and kind of for the metal scene in general, to a degree, to connect Pantera to Anthrax, this era of metal in terms of like the big guys, the big main metal thrash bands, it was a time of tumultuous turnaround. And I only know that because of, well, because of this conversation you're about to listen to with Brandon. So I'll just go ahead and let him take the wheel on that one. Hi. Hello. Hi. 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 We did it. Hi. How's it going? Great. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Good to talk to you again. You too. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, man. Thanks for coming back on. Can't do it without guests. Can't do it without you. You doing all right? Yeah, just uh, milking the last bit of summer I can, you know. (laughs) That's funny. I'm sitting here thinking like, well, you've already been on the show once. I can't ask you how we know each other because we've already covered that ground. So I thought... I'm really excited that summer's finally ending. <laughs> I was going to ask you what, if anything, you're excited about for the coming fall, but since you seem more interested in summer, what are you juicing out of the last of summer? Well, just kayaking. Uh, yeah. Living on the lake, get the last few laps on the kayak in, and then one more trip to Cedar Point to close out the summer, because I got the gold pass and I got to make it pay for itself. <laughs> These are great things you're talking about. You're not wrong. Kayaking in Cedar Point, that's nice. Yeah, I'm kind of a amateur coaster enthusiast these days. Going pretty regularly, huh? Yeah. That's cool. You know, we're right there next to America's Rock and Roller Coast, so uh, take advantage, right? Since Bablo closed, it's like our home park. Yeah. Pretty much in this area of Michigan. So, uh, should we get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. Let's get into it. So, how did you come to Anthrax? How did you get to get into this album? Well, I said on my uh, last appearance on your show, mm-hmm. Metallica really kicked open the door for heavy music for yeah. me. Any Metallica fan, past, present, or future, if you're doing research into the band, you always hear three other bands always named with them, and that's Megadeth, Slayer, and Anthrax. Yeah. They're collectively known as the Big Four of American thrash metal. Mm -hmm. Pretty much invented it. The Four Horsemen. Yep, yep. So pretty soon after Metallica, I was into Anthrax. But I was into the 80s thrash era Anthrax, because that's what you first get indoctrinated into from Metallica. And 
I was doing research into Anthrax when I got into them, and you know, in the limited research you could do in those days, magazines and, like I said, album review compilation books, which were a thing, like massive, like three-inch thick books with like every band, every album A to Z up until that point that the book was published. Yeah. Like at Rolling Stone had one and. I had a few of those books, and I would dive into those, but the, the consensus was like Anthrax, 80s thrash era is the way to go, and they have another singer, and they have other albums that are pretty good, but you know, the mob consensus of the time was, you know, stick with the 80s thrash. So I was kind of hesitant to pick up the uh, John Bush era Anthrax, the previous singer, Joey Belladonna. So I eventually got Sound of White Noise through a podcast favorite Columbia House. There we go. I also too opened Columbia House and uh, BMG as well. I had those coming to my house. Yep, that's how you do it. So I got Sound of White Noise through Columbia House as I was bolstering my CD collection at the time. And I wasn't sure what to expect because like I said, the consensus was, you know, whatever, it's there. Mm -hmm. Check it out if you want. And bands changing singers. That's a huge thing, you know. That's yeah. Not a light thing. Like the voice of the band changing it can go either way you know yeah it killed some bands exactly so i was hesitant like i said but i popped it in and i was very pleasantly surprised to this day it's in my regular rotation okay as an album and an anthrax album nice you mentioned columbia house i actually got either from columbia house or bmg1 back in the day i got attack of the killer bees for some reason i you know i was 11 or 12 i was like okay anthrax i've heard of anthrax and I got that, and I got to say, I, I never really listened to it. As I mentioned last time you and I talked, I'm not the hugest metalhead, but I recognize that these four bands you mentioned are important to American culture, and Anthrax generally is, so I definitely wanted to talk about them. And it's really interesting how a band could be such a big 80s band and then shift gears pretty dramatically here. It feels pretty 93. Some of the guitar work that's being done still has you know a bit of a throwback to the 80s feel, but this feels like it's from the era. And I think it's funny also, the last time you were on, we did Pantera's Far Beyond Driven, which also seems to be like a pivotal album for the band when they kind of shifted gears as well. It's interesting. Yeah, it's a musical shift. And it's also like a attitude shift. Yeah. 80s Anthrax was like fun. They were like out of the big four. They're like the band that laughed and like mm -hmm. wrote songs about Stephen King novels and John Belushi and just, you know, yeah, random stuff. And they had a mascot called the Not Man. Like they had a rap song and stuff like oh, that. Like, yeah, I'm the man. It actually went platinum. It was their only platinum album. <laughs> but that's all muted on this. It's very of the time. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty serious album. And it seems like when I went to Spotify to start listening to it, when I looked at like the list of, you know, it's always shows like the four albums or whatever, they're the most popular and they're all the albums from the 80s. So it seems like what people are listening to is still more the Belladonna era than the Bush era. Different Bush era than ordinarily I would use that phrase, but you know what I mean? It just seems like uh, people seem to prefer the Belladonna era. Yeah. And that's kind of like the beauty of being like a, a heavy Anthrax fan is you kind of get two different bands out of being an Anthrax fan. Well, yeah, I can see that. I get the 80s thrash era, and, and also I get like a different 90s heavier still, but now Joey Belladonna's back in the band, so it's full circle, but oh, you get two different bands in one, which is cool. Yeah. And they're both good versions, which is surprising and refreshing from you know how it could have gone. Are they kind of returned to funner and lighter kind of material with him being back writing lyrics and stuff? 
Um, it's more mature, definitely, yeah. but it's definitely they got that attitude back in the band, that 80s thrash attitude. Why did John Bush leave? Do you know? They wanted to do a tour mm-hmm. with both singers. Oh, that makes sense. So they could have a set with each singer, and John Bush wasn't on board with that. That's what we call career suicide. Yeah. That was not a great call. All right. Well, so in listening to this album, what sticks out to you as the best track on this album? That's the big question. My favorite song is Room for One More. three room for one more it's kind of the whole john bush era kind of boiled down into like one song and it's got like a huge catchy chorus it's still heavy the great charlie bonatti the drummer on this album he's one of the all-stars for me on this album he kills it he's all over the place him and uh frank bellow they form a great rhythm section on the uh main riff on this from start to finish I think it's one of the best songs, probably the best song for me on the album, and maybe for the John Bush era, yeah. I'd say, for me. That one's fun. I like that one. I kind of went back and forth on how I felt about this album. It didn't grab me quite as strongly as the Pantera album did, but songs like Room for One More, yeah, I felt like that one grabbed me, only grabbed me, and a few others grabbed me, but like... A lot of times it felt like there's still like one foot still in the 80s thrash and another foot kind of more in the like modern sound with the album. And I like the more modern stuff better. And then I think that Room for One More felt like pretty well balanced. That's what I like about the album is its balance of the 80s and the 90s. Because like I said, if you were to play this for someone like any track off 80s era anthrax and then play any track off Sound of White Noise, you would not know it's the same band. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't know. That's why this album, it still had some of the uh, driving riffs and double bass drum work Mm -hmm. that was a hallmark of that era that they kept in the 90s, which I dig. So I kind of like the blend. And I think Room for One More kind of, like you said, blends that perfectly for me. And that's also what I like about the album. That makes sense. It would be like a representative song for you from the album. Yeah. With Pantera, there was one song I was like, ah, this is clearly the worst song on the album. But with this album, I'm completely new to it really so i won't list any songs i think are the worst or anything like that but i will say the song that i thought is the best uh, the song that stuck out to me the most is packaged rebellion
thought that song was pretty kick-ass. I like how it's really long. I mean, it's like a six-minute fucking burn. Mm-hmm. I like the message. I like that it's kind of like, it seems almost like he's um, taking on his kind of frivolously-minded, empty, kind of just anti-authority fans that are just anti-authority with nothing to offer in its replacement. You know, and I think that's like a really interesting take for a band of that kind of stature and, and vibe. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the few interviews I could find on this era was from Guitar World, and Scott Ian, the girl guitar player, specifically mentions Package Rebellion. Sorry, I was saying it like he sings it. Package Rebellion. <laughs> he uh, specifically mentions that as him watching, I guess he was saying Lollapalooza, and like uh-huh. how it wants to stand for something, yet it's corporate as hell at the same time type of deal and how corporate america is selling a packaged rebellion to the fans like here you go here's your kit to get started yeah i think that's brilliant you and i were teenagers for most of the 90s and you know it was pre 9-11 it was a pretty i'm not saying everything was hunky-dory and perfect there's all kinds of shit that was fucked up but i mean it was a pretty peaceful and okay time but at the same time i remember a lot of angst and a lot of like just malaise and you know anti everything kind of feelings you know maybe it's the people i was hanging out with him my age and stuff but a lot of it was kind of directionless and uh i think the song captures it he was kind of saying like you're on the cover of the rolling stone with a shirt that says fuck corporate america but you're still on the cover of the rolling stone you know what i mean (laughs) right you can put your tongue in your cheek as deeply as you want to kurt but uh you're still doing what you're doing yeah so that's what he said his take on package rebellion was which i thought was pretty cool yeah and it's got a really good feel to it I love that song. That was that. Um, and um, only I was kicking around for one of my favorites, too, just because only that was the lead single off of it. Yeah, which didn't surprise me. That was the other one I was considering to name as my favorite as well. Yeah, it's an explosive chorus. I could just see people like, I'm sure people go nuts for that song live, probably still, or if they still play it, I guess. Well, coincidentally enough, Only is the only John Bush era song that Joey Belladonna sings to this day. Really? That's funny. So it, it was a pretty big single then, huh? Yeah. I guess if the fans demand it, and also from what I understand, from what I briefly read, I didn't dig too deeply into the background of the band and stuff, so I figured you would come pretty well armed with that knowledge. But I did see something on the Wikipedia page for the song only that said that, like, James Hetfield, I think, was saying that it was, like, the perfect metal song and that kind of stuff, and it's a highly respected song. And I get it. It it is a really cool song. Yep, he told Scotty and then Charlie Bonatti that after they played it for him. And also, coincidentally enough, back in the early 80s when all of those bands were first starting out, mm-hmm. Metallica was looking for a singer because James Hetfield did not want to sing. He never wanted to sing. He never wanted to be the front mm-hmm. man. And their main person that they considered was John Bush. Oh, really? Yep. But John Bush turned them down because he was in the band Armored Saint, which is the band he left Anthrax to sing for. They're just some random 
whatever 80s band. He left Armored Saints to sing for Anthrax? Yes. But when Metallica asked him back in the day, in the, I think it was 82, mm-hmm. he was already in Armored Saint. They said, sorry, Metallica, I got these guys. And, you know, hindsight 2020, obviously, for John Bush. Maybe a decade of being like, shit, I could have been in one of the biggest bands. And then Anthrax yeah. tapped him a decade later. He's like, yes, please, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> that would make sense. Yeah, all those bands are just all connected in so many ways back then. What about a song that is underrated? Do you have an underrated song for this album? Yeah, I have a few of them, but the main one, I was going to say before we started the podcast, hands down, it's going to be a thousand points of hate. That was my sleeper. But then after listening to the album again, I was like, you know what? Sodium pentothal. formula right. on the album sleeve but it's sodium pentothal it's truth serum all oh, right that's what that is <laughs> yeah okay but that song's a banger man yeah it is pretty fun and i'd love that you were able to go because i've done that too where you kind of go in thinking well that's probably going to be the, how i feel about whatever whatever then you listen to it again with that new kind of perspective because you haven't listened to it in a while and you're also kind of thinking about it differently because you're being more critical or whatever for the pod and it's yeah. like oh well actually this is how i feel and it's a bold move to have just like string of like letters to be a song title but it's pretty cool i mean they could easily call it sodium pentothal or truth serum but like no no it's the chemical makeup on <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, like I said, I listen to the album pretty regularly, and I was but sitting down again, like, mm-hmm. what's underrated to me, right? And I was like, you know what, Sodium Pentothal, the drumming performance on that just is off the chain, and then the bridge, a pre-chorus, and the chorus that are just like huge in it. And I'm just like, all right, it's fast, it's got great almost punk rock energy to it, a lot of open power chords. Yeah, yeah, and especially if you're really into the drummer, that does seem like a song where he gets to. I mean. He shines through the whole album, but uh, yeah, that's pretty pummeling. I feel like that song. Yeah, so that's my underrated one would be Sony and Pentathol, and then runner up would be Thousand Points of Hate. Thousand Points of Hate is very, I mean, just the reference is so 90s, right? The reference to George H.W. Bush. 
But yeah, that's a pretty cool song too. I like that one. As I'm talking to you, I'm like, well, maybe I like more of this album than I thought. Or maybe it's like, I feel like I like parts of it. There are like some songs where I'm like, I'm not sure that I'm into the whole song, but then there's moments of the song that really grab me, if that makes sense. And that's kind of how I felt like with a thousand points of hate or whatever it's called. I felt like the beginning in particular really seizes you. Yeah, there's parts on some songs that feel kind of tacked on or extra. The editing could have gone a little better on some of the songs. Maybe. And also, like, I don't have the benefit of listening to it for 30 years and being like a hardcore fan. But I do think that they have, and that song is a good example, they, they have a different kind of songwriting approach than I was expecting in that they're pretty lengthy with their songs and that they are a little more experimental and taking left turns with their songwriting than I was expecting. Yeah, and that's kind of a thing they kind of carried over from some of the thrash era. They always wrote little lengthier songs mm. with some instrumental passages that kind of came out of left field where you're like, whoa. Oh, okay. I can see that. That's one of the things they carried over that I kind of dug too because that's one of their hallmarks. Still the same band, just bisected. Yeah. I want to say uh, Dan Spitz, lead guitar player, he's kind of muted on this album. He's pretty much sticking to just bluesy, serve the song. He was an 80s shredder. Mm-hmm. Dimebag Daryl cited him as one of his big influences. Oh, wow. But yeah, on this album, he kind of just is, you know, more to the laid back approach for the solos. Didn't John Bush help write a lot of these songs too, or is it just the lyrics that he was helping to write with? For writing credits, it's uh, music and lyrics by John Bush, Charlie Benetti, and Scotty. So that's everyone but Spitz. The guitar player and the bass player. Okay, so that's interesting. Frankie Bello and Dan Spitz. Okay, so maybe that is partly why Spitz is a little bit more background than you would think a lead guitarist would be, maybe? And then also, this is Dan Spitz's last album. He was with the band. Oh, he may have been unhappy or maybe like on his way out kind of mentally, or maybe he was unhappy with how it came out and that was partly how he left, maybe, you know? Well, that has something to do with it, like the musical direction, he said, and also after the tour and the album, he retired from music and went to Switzerland Hmm. to study making Swiss timepieces. (laughs) That's some Daniel Day-Lewis shit. (laughs) He went from 80s thrash shredder to Swiss timepiece maker, and that's what he did for years, but he joined Anthrax briefly again in 2005 and then that was it. He went back to watches. There's something super fucking cool about someone achieving the dream that like so many other people want and then using that as a way to like catapult into doing what they really want to do, which is move to Switzerland and work on clocks. <laughs> like I imagine there's more money in that, honestly, than anthrax. <sighs> I wouldn't be surprised. That's a harsh reality is that people think, oh, you're like you're on TV or you're, you have a big album, or whatever. you must be rich. I'm like, no, artists are mostly not rich. So what about, do you have a least favorite song you could pick here? Oh, um, least favorites for me would be Black Lodge. Yeah, it feels different from the rest of the album in a pretty dramatic way, I thought. Did you look into the uh, writing credits on that? I did not. Are you familiar with Twin Peaks? I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm familiar with it. Is it. It's a reference to Twin Peaks? Well, the Black Lodge is a Twin Peaks reference. Okay. But the gentleman who wrote the theme song and all the music for the movie and series Mm -hmm. has a co-write on this song. Oh, no wonder it's so different. Yeah, Angelo Badalamente. And it was a single too, wasn't it? Yes, yes it was. The singles uh, were only Room for One More, Black Lodge, and High Pro Glow. That's interesting because Black Lodge is a lot more, um, especially if they're trying to like, 
keep their fan base but also appeal to new people that one feels a little bit more i don't know there's something esoteric and kind of like i want to say like european or something i don't know it just has like a really kind of like well funny enough that's what some of the band says killed the album sales was black lodge as the third single because it was released in the summer and they wanted to do high pro glow which is like a high energy you know summer song yeah high bpm but the record label is like nah we're doing black lodge and they said it totally killed the buzz at least that's what they said i mean it says something if they said it right if that's how they feel about their own song and its effect on their sales yeah but for me black lodge i mean it's it's got a lot of tension Mm -hmm. and it doesn't really go anywhere that's well put that's exactly what it is it feels so moody and like you're kind of waiting for this break that never comes it's got, I guess, a cool chorus or whatever, and it gets kind of heavy with some decent guitar harmonies at the end. But yeah. I'm expecting an epic conclusion or something or whatever, but it's just kind of meanders along and whatever. Have you ever gotten a chance to see them live? Yes, Anthrax is one of the bands I've seen the most live. Oh, really? Yes. How many times? Do you have any idea? I have to estimate about 15 times. That's a lot. That's a lot of times. <laughs> You're not right. The first time I saw them was at the Emerald Ballroom. I don't know. It was in Mount Clemens. Oh, okay. It was Motorhead and Anthrax. Okay. So Anthrax opened for Motorhead. Uh-huh. So that was a very loud show. <laughs> I bet this was in the 90s, I'm guessing. This was uh, actually 2003. Oh. This was actually the end of the John Bush era. So I did see John Bush live That's cool. with them. I'm glad you got to do that. Yeah, and it was awesome. I went on the Motorhead motorboat cruise. <laughs> it was a, wow. a Motorhead cruise on a Norwegian cruise ship and... Anthrax played that, so I saw Anthrax in the middle of the ocean. That's pretty fucking cool. Who else was on that cruise? It was uh, Motorhead, Anthrax, Slayer, Hatebreed, Corrosion of Conformity, Exodus. Wow, that's wild. Yeah, it was, it was a heavy cruise. <laughs> I bet. And then I just saw them this year at the Milwaukee Metal Fest. Awesome. Well, Anthrax is recording a new album right now, so as soon as that comes out and as soon as I go on tour for it, I will be right there. As close as I can be. So, yeah, you're definitely a lifer. Yes, I love Anthrax. Scott Ian, like I said, my big three of influential guitar players are Tony Iommi, James Hatfield, and Dimebag. But a fourth place is definitely Scott Ian. Yeah. Being one of the uh, main thrash guitar lords of thrash music. For sure. What track do you want to use to go out on? Hmm, I was kicking around either only or this is not an exit. We had to talk about only, so I'll throw the song in when we talk about it there. Yeah, it'd be a shame for the people not to hear only. I'll definitely put that in there when we were talking about it earlier. So I want to use This Is Not An Exit? Yeah, let's do This Is Not An Exit for my exit. (laughs) It's Yeah, it's a kind of a cheeky last song title. Cool. Yeah, I like that one too. I think it makes sense as an ender. And it's a pretty long album, right? It's an hour long, which feels kind of long. But that's a song that's like both... You know, it rocks and whatnot, but it's also has a bit more of like a, uh, okay, kind of a more relaxed vibe for what's going on anyway. Yeah, I think it's a great album closer as well. Yeah. It's an epic long track. Any other memories or anything else about Anthrax you want to mention before we move on? Um, Let's see. This charted, it debuted at number seven on the Billboard Top 200. It's not bad. New singer. Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, the week of June 12th, 1993. It's at number seven, sandwiched in between Dr. Dre's The Chronic at eight and Get a Grip by Aerosmith at six. Okay. And if you want to know the number one, it's uh, 
Janet by Janet Jackson. That was a really big album that no one ever talks about anymore. <laughs> At least not in my circles. <laughs> Anthrax. Up. And not in mine either. <laughs> One more thing I want to mention. Producer was uh, Dave Jordan, who also produced all of the Alice in Chains albums. Yeah, that definitely, you feel that. This album has also been referred to as Anthrax in Chains <laughs> by some fans. I don't think it's too heavy-handed. No, I mean, I could see that by the vocal melodies and maybe some of like the guitar tones and sludgy riffs, but Alice in Chains was never this fast. No. Or hard. And I imagine if it sounded the exact same and it wasn't the same producer, probably people would not have made those comparisons, I feel like. And also, are you familiar with Terminator X from Public Enemy? No. He was their DJ. Okay. And apparently, I was looking on the Wikipedia, he has a credit on the album. Oh. Apparently, he does some record scratching on A Thousand Points of Hate, which, like I said, I've been listening to this album since, you know, 1998, and I never heard that. <laughs> As you said that, I'm like, there's a record scratching? Oh, I missed that. Apparently. <laughs> okay, that's cool. And you know what? I also want to say before we move on from Anthrax that I feel like, and maybe this is in my own head, you know, who knows? You can't really judge these things for sure, but coming to this album without ever having listened to it before, I do feel like there's a couple bands that I like and have listened to a long time. I bet they're big fans. In particular, Voice Hats Fire and CKY. Listening to this album, I'm like, I keep on hearing these moments that just make me think of these other bands and these other kind of moments from like 10, 15 years after this album's release. CKY, I could probably almost guarantee it. And then also that whole era, like you said, Voice Hats Fire, like kind of the whole era, like they loved like that 80s metal. Like remember when Sum 41 brought out Carrie King? No, but I never got into Sum 41. Who's Carrie King also? No, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, Carrie King, lead guitar for Slayer. All right. See, yeah, again, not the metalhead. I should know that kind of thing. I knew Scott Ian's name. I always got it mixed up with Ian McKay, but I did know Scott Ian's name. That's like one of the few people that could have named from the metal scene. I was at a Strung Out concert, and I saw their guitar player wearing an Exodus shirt, and I was like, hell yeah, man. Like, So I know a lot of those dudes did metal. Yeah, there's a lot of crossover, especially in like the guitarists. You know, of those yeah. bands, not necessarily the whole band, but the guitarists. You can hear it in the guitar work a lot of times. Yeah. 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 So what else you listen to? Anything else? Um, I'm still digesting the new Metallica album. Okay. That's what you mentioned last time. So you're spending a lot of time with that. Yes. Because <laughs> those releases are kind of a huge milestone in my mm -hmm. life. And I'm seeing them uh, in Ford Field in a couple months. Nice. Still getting into that. Cool. I'll give a shout out to my girlfriend, Heather, and her project, Good Ghoul. Good Ghoul. Are they streaming on the normal places? Um, It's her just solo. Okay. And she's on uh, SoundCloud. Okay. So check that out on SoundCloud. Awesome. Yes. Good Ghoul on SoundCloud. Uh, are you ready for your 90s trivia, Brandon? Yes, please. Hit me. How old were you in 93? I was nine years old. That's about what I figured. Okay. Born in 84. Okay. So you were playing with toys in 1993. Yes. It was the year, like I said in my last appearance, it was the year I decided I needed to listen to music. <laughs> it's a good year. It's an important year. I don't know why or what, but yeah, that was the year. It was the best year you could have possibly chosen to get into music in a way. Best year of music probably in world history if you had to ask this extremely biased podcast host. 
So I want to talk toys with you. I got a list of five of the biggest toys from 1993. Okay. I want you to tell me which one of these five you would have been most excited about in 1993, and which one of these toys, if you could get like a pristine version of it now, which one would you take? Gotcha. So number one, the biggest selling toy of 1993 at Christmas was this thing I have like zero recollection of called Talk Boy. I guess it was what Kevin oh, McAllister. Each it at Home Alone too. Yeah, yes. see, you were right there with it. Kevin McAllister used it in Home Alone too. I guess I'm more of a Home Alone one guy. I haven't seen the Trump one as much, but uh, yeah, it's whatever he uses to like record and stuff on that one. You could buy that in '93. It was a big seller. Huge plot point of the film. Was it? I guess I. I guess I'll have to watch that this Christmas. Beanie Babies were released for the first time in 1993. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, another one is Action Man. Action Man was like this weird, kind of like the size of the big G.I. Joes from before, like they, when they were little handheld figurines, but they were like more like dolls. So it was like that. And it was like Action Man the Construction Man, Action Man the Engineer, like all these kind of different stuff. None of my friends are playing with that. Yeah, I don't really remember that one either. I have no, no memory. I don't either, but it was like literally one of the biggest toys of the era, and I'm like, or at least according to a bunch of websites, and I'm like, I have zero recollection of Action Man. I know the reference in the Bowie song. But, however, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, no one could forget them. One of the big toys of 1993, apparently, and I have no memory of this either, was called uh, TMNT Mutations Road Ready Splinter. So it was like the party wagon, you know, the party wagon there van. Yeah. It was that with Splinter behind the wheel, but it transformed into a giant Splinter. Oh, wow. Yeah, they were at that era of the figures. <laughs> right. People are buying whatever the fuck we put out. We could just churn it out and people will buy it. And then lastly, Bump and Go Action Robot, which you probably don't remember the name, but you might remember it when I describe it to you. It was like a plastic robot, I don't know, nine inches tall, 10 inches tall, and typically they'd be like black with red flashing eyes and they would just kind of like roll around on the floor and like bump into things and like lights would flash and go beep bloop and like bleep bloop and all that kind of stuff. These are your options. So, gotcha. which will it be? If you're gonna buy one in, in 1993, would you have the Talk Boy, Beanie Baby, an Action Man, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutations, Road Ready, Splinter, or the Bump and Go Action Robot? Now, straight off the like, top of my head, hands down, Talk Boy. Yeah. But, if I had the list before and I researched the current day values, my answer might change. Right. So that's why I'm saying, like, what would you get then and what would you get now? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Talk Boy, definitely then, which I believe I even asked for at probably Christmas. Really? And then now, yeah, whatever the most expensive record sell is. Well, which one do you think? Do you know which one it is? I have a pretty strong guess. Uh, um, probably the Beanie Baby, I'm assuming. <laughs> yes, that was my guess. Being that, that that became like a global sensation that people like murdered one another over just to get these collectibles. I can only imagine what some of the first Beanie Babies would be worth in good condition today. And I believe I saw a preview the other day for an Apple Plus show of the biopic of Beanie Baby starring Jack Black. Oh my God. That's after the documentary just came out like last year too. So there's yeah. revisiting so it's, Beanie. It's getting out of control. <laughs> Biopics. Yeah, I would not actually want a Beanie Baby, but I would do the same thing. I would make bank on a Beanie Baby any fucking day. All right, man. Thank you so much for doing this, man. I really appreciate you coming back on and furthering my education of the uh, the metal of the era. You're a valued member of the 93-94 community, for sure. Thanks for having me on. I mean, like, get me going. I'll talk about metal all day. I mean, I'll talk about roller coasters. You know, <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> 
But if you want to have me on again, I'm more than happy to come on. I will definitely have you on again and uh, and get you started on metal. And I will come up with some roller coaster questions for you too. Cool. <laughs> awesome, man. Thank you. Thanks, Charles. Thank you for listening to me and Brandon talk all about the band Anthrax and their album Sound of White Noise. It's always interesting to me when I'm doing this podcast to have a guest on that is talking about an album, a band that I'm not that into, not that familiar with. It's always fun to get that kind of perspective. I mean, part of doing this podcast is the fact that I want to delve into albums that I love, and I get to do that plenty. But it's also fun to sometimes just kind of like be in someone else's world for a little bit. And I appreciate Brandon letting us into his his little anthrax world for a little while. Ordinarily, this part of the show is when I beseech you, dear listener, to come on to my show yourself, and I try to like pitch an album at you. But this time, you know, Brandon mentioned his girlfriend, Heather. Unfortunately, when he said her name, it kind of like blurbed out there for a second, but her name is Heather, and her band, Good Ghoul. So I thought, why not give her a shout out, support some local music, check out a little bit of her as Good Ghoul playing the song Sweet Tooth, and we'll go out with that instead. I think that I'm finally gonna go out tonight I can't lie to myself I know I've got a time I'm drawn to the man with no goodwill inside inside their Again, you can find Good Ghoul on SoundCloud, so definitely check that out. Yeah, and if you do want to come on the podcast, you can email me at 9394podcast at gmail.com. It's come to my attention that my podcast is kind of hard to find in some search engines. Uh, you do have to put the hyphen in between 93 and 94 everywhere except for when emailing me, because I guess I just have to make everything complicated. And I have two podcasts that both have the numerical nine in the title for some reason. I don't know. Um, oh, yeah. Last of all, if you want to help out the show, you know, click follow, subscribe, whatever, rate, review, do all that good stuff if you can. It really actually does help. And uh, yeah, so that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Bye bye.
9394, a music podcast with Travis Roy, is a labor of love. It is not and never will be monetized. Please don't sue. Be dangerous and unpredictable.